For the week of Wednesday, May 22nd, 2019, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, preventing war with Iran with 9th Congressional District Congressman Adam Smith. He is the chair of the Armed Services Committee, and we talk about the potential fallout and ramifications of an armed escalation with a country like Iran. And we get his take on why the Trump administration seems to be pushing our country in that direction and what he and other Democrats are working to do to stop them. Also, our coverage of the NARAL pro-choice Washington rally at Seattle City Hall on Tuesday, which was in response to the now eight states that have passed laws that are increasingly restricting women's reproductive rights. We spoke with Attorney General Bob Ferguson, State Senator Monka Dingra, and others about what's at stake and about what we can be doing here in Washington to fight back. We also have our weekly calls to action with our friend Stephen Wilhelm. That's all ahead, so stay with us. As the Trump administration has been actively escalating tensions with Iran, Americans are increasingly concerned about the prospect of war. Washington's 9th District Congressman Adam Smith is the chair of the Armed Services Committee, and he is with us now to discuss the situation. Congressman Smith, I know you have a very busy day today, so thank you for taking the time. Happy to be on. Thanks for the chance. So uh, you were one of several members of the House and Senate who met on Tuesday in a closed-door session with Acting Defense Secretary Patrick Shanahan and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo about the situation. And I want to discuss that in just a moment. But first, from your view, talk briefly about the potential fallout from instigating a war with a country like Iran. Well, I mean, Iran is involved in a lot of different places, as are the adversaries of Iran. And if we were to engage in any sort of, you know, back and forth military confrontation with Iran, it would spread across, gosh, Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, Yemen. You know, potentially Israel could get involved because there's the long history of animosity between Israel and Iran and because Netanyahu is in. Well, I'm not a fan of the way Netanyahu is ruling Israel. I would be concerned about him seeing this as an opportunity. So it could explode into a just acceleration of the humanitarian crisis that we've already seen in Syria, Iraq and Yemen um, and simply exacerbate that. So. There are so many different places for us to you know, be in conflict with Iran that if a fight started, it could spread beyond what, what people, I think, are, are aware of. Well, so given all that, why do you believe members of the Trump administration, most notably uh, National Security Advisor John Bolton, why do you suspect that they are pushing so hard for this? What do you speculate their motive is? Well, their motive is, well, two things. One, keep in mind, the driving motive behind everything that Republicans do is to show that Obama was wrong. Um, That basically, you know, if President Obama and Hillary Clinton were for it, it must be, you know, the dumbest thing in the world. So we're going to do the opposite. Well, that's ostensibly why the Trump administration was moved to scrap the nuclear nonproliferation treaty with Iran to begin with. Right. Absolutely. Yes. So, you know, that's a huge, huge part of this. Um, and you know, so they're, they're trying to reverse that, but then, I mean, John Bolton has a great deal of influence as national security advisor. And look, it is, it is not disputable that Iran is engaged in a lot of behavior that is violent, contrary to our interests and, you know, sows death and instability throughout the region. They, I mean, Iran is primarily responsible for Assad staying in power. Uh, with a late assist from Russia, of course. And what Assad has done to the people of Syria is indefensible. And Iran is his chief backer that has enabled him to stay in power. 
So, and certainly Iran, you know, was influential in Lebanon. They sell rockets to Hamas and other groups that launch them into Israel. So, Iran is definitely a bad actor in the region. Now, it is worth noting that that's all because we propped up the Shah uh, for the better part of 40 years, who was a, well, actually, I'm wrong, 26 years. Um, And the Shah was a brutal and ineffective leader that led to that revolution. So we shouldn't forget that history. But we have, you know, a long conflict with Iran. Iran has, is doing things uh, that we wish they weren't. So, the approach of the Trump administration is, as they put it, maximum pressure, and that's primarily sanctions. Um, it's sanctions, but it's also trying to attack Iranian interests or trying to thwart Iranian interests within within Iraq and Syria and Yemen. Um, and all of this has put a lot of pressure on Iran. And economically, Iran is in very bad shape right now. And so they are reacting to that. They want to find some way to reduce the sanctions pressure that the U.S. is leading against them. Um, certainly, you know, us backing out of the nuclear deal exacerbated that problem. And by the way, also put Iran back on the path to potentially having a nuclear weapon. I was going to ask you about that. In your opinion, did you feel that that deal was was effective, was was holding? Yes, absolutely. And look, I mean, I think the Obama administration was very clear eyed about their approach to this. Um Iran is engaged in a lot of bad behavior. The nuclear agreement that was negotiated by Wendy Sherman and by the the Obama administration was simply focused on that issue. Look, for all the other stuff that Iran is doing, it's going to be a thousand times worse if they build a nuclear weapon. We think we have the leverage to get them to stop. And the deal that was put in place did just that. It got into Iran, the IAEA inspectors, to make sure that Iran wasn't violating it and stop their nuclear program. Um, now, it didn't deal with all those other issues because it couldn't. Iran wouldn't come to the table on those. And the Trump administration's stated reason for blowing up the nuclear deal is, well, it didn't deal with these other issues. Now, frankly, the Trump administration has been very dishonest, saying that Iran was violating the agreement. They weren't. There's no evidence whatsoever that they violated that agreement. Um, it is true that their other bad behavior is continuing, but again, That was a separate subject. So they blew up that agreement, put Iran back on the path to a nuclear weapon, and and that ramped up the conflict. And now Iran is trying to figure out some way to get out from under the sanctions. They want to drive us out of the region because we have a fairly substantial troop presence in Iraq, uh, lesser so in Syria. So there is credible threat reporting that Iran was going to help their militias, primarily in Iraq, attack U.S. troops. Um, but that's all how it sort of accelerated. And the big concern is it keeps accelerating out to a full on war that we stumble into a conflict um, through sort of accidental escalation. You know, as I said at the top, uh, you led a closed door meeting with acting defense secretary Patrick Shanahan and secretary of state Mike Pompeo yes. with other House members and senators to discuss the situation. This meeting was classified. But what, if anything, can you tell us about that meeting? Um, well, I'll tell you a couple of things. First of all, I'm deeply worried about the dynamic within the Trump foreign policy. Um, and I'm trying to try to figure out how to say this on radio without using an appropriate word. Let's just say that Secretary Pompeo is somewhat fond of himself um, <laughs> and was not. I mean, basically, he le- and this was by the way, this meeting was for all of Congress. Now, 
I had been briefed the previous week on the Armed Services Committee. We had Intel folks in, and we got a brief just the Armed Services Committee last Friday. And this was basically the same thing. Um, but Secretary Pompeo made no effort to explain their policy or explain how this policy was going to advance our interests. He basically lectured us until I cut him off, uh, which prompted a bit of an argument. Um, he lectured us about how bad Iran is. He went through the whole history of the hostages and different Iranian attacks on U.S. interests and other interests, all of which we know. And I, no one is saying that Iran is not a bad actor. They are. What we wanted to know was what is the intelligence that you based your current escalation on and what is your what are you, you going to do? Where is it going to go? OK, if Iran attacks us, what are you going to do? Um, are you interested in regime change? Do you think you need Congress's approval? Uh, for military action against Iran. And by and large, the secretary didn't answer any of that. Um, he just kept telling us how bad Iran was and that he was right and we were wrong. And really, most members, most members were just looking for information. And they weren't looking for argument. It was like, explain your policy to us. Um, now, Secretary Shanahan was a little more straightforward in explaining you know, the military positioning, the assets that we had sent to the region, why we had sent them there, what their role was. Secretary Shanahan isn't really driving the policy. Pompeo and Bolton are driving the policy. And we really didn't get an adequate explanation of that policy. For instance, this maximum pressure campaign that we're engaged in, is it changing Iranian behavior in a way that is positive for us? There really was no evidence of that. Iran is still backing Assad. They're still backing the Houthis in Yemen. They're still backing Hezbollah. You know, they're still backing militias in Iraq and trying to undermine us. So how is your maximum pressure campaign changing Iran's behavior? Secretary really wasn't interested in answering those questions. Well, he said apparently in the meeting that there were numerous credible threats currently against the United States in the region. Um, Diane Feinstein, a uh, member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, said that she didn't believe that there are credible threats. So what's your assessment? Well, I mean, I disagree with Diane Feinstein a little bit. To begin with, there are credible threats in the region. I mean, look, ever since we invaded Iraq in 2003, Iran has been in conflict with us. Um, they're not happy about having any number of U.S. troops sitting on their border. And, yeah, you know, we're in Afghanistan, too. So at the peak, gosh, we had like 200,000 U.S. troops sitting on their eastern and their western border, all the while having leadership that was talking about regime change in Iran. So. To my view, they were a little – and I don't like Iran. I don't agree with Iran. Uh, but they were justifiable in seeing this as a bit of a threat to their interests. So, yeah, I mean they – now there was, there was a bit of a period there. When ISIS rose up, Iran backed off from attacking us. And the big thing that has changed is that, you know, well, it's tough because a lot of this is classified. Let's just say that there are credible threats to U.S. service members primarily and U.S. interests in the region coming out of Iran. The question for me is, are those threats any greater than they were a year ago? Well, you also said in a press briefing after that meeting that you were concerned now about a risk for miscalculation on both sides. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Well, for instance, there was this, you know, these, um, I think, three or four vessels that apparently had mines planted on them. Uh, oil uh, tankers uh, in the UAE um, that, you know, we blame on Iran. 
okay, so what if we say, all right, you did this, we got to, you know, I don't know, bomb, you know, bomb something in Iran, you know, and then Iran says, okay, well, we're going to fire missiles at your embassy, Um, you know, all under the notion of a proportional response, but a proportional response can very quickly escalate. And then, like I said, there are so many proxies out there. So, okay, Iran green lights their militias in Iraq to attack U.S. interests and potentially even to attack Sunni interests to reignite the civil war between Shia and Sunni. You know, they, you know, green light Hezbollah in Lebanon or Hamas down in the Gaza Strip to start lobbing missiles into Israel uh, to hopefully distract us that way. Israel sees that as an existential threat, so they start bombing Iran. Um, We come in on Israel's side. Um, and then you've got all manner of different terrorist groups who go, awesome, you know, we're back in the game. And they start launching attacks in a bunch of different places. And that's how you go from a proportional response to a full-scale war. And I am not confident Secretary Pompeo, in all his, if I may say so, pomposity, uh, (laughs) is a sober enough analyst and leader to figure out how to avoid that sort of conflagration. So that's what we should be worried about. What you're painting what is potentially an extraordinarily grim picture. Um, On a brighter note, at a dinner for the East Side Democrats on Saturday, you announced that you were doing everything in your power, in your capacity as chair of the Armed Services Committee to prevent war with Iran. You got a huge ovation for that. Can you talk specifically about what it is that you are doing here to prevent a potential war? Well, the big thing is we want to put language in that says you cannot start a war with Iran or Venezuela, by the way, without congressional approval Um, and to try to block the president uh, from engaging in military hostilities that don't first go through Congress. That's the biggest thing we can do. But I will tell you what I told the audience there. Um, Regrettably, most presidents find a way to use the military regardless of what Congress says if they really want to. You know, Bill Clinton, you know, started the air campaign against Kosovo, whatever one may think of that. Uh, Congress had, well, had a vote on it. It was defeated. People also think of LBJ and the Gulf of Tonkin resolution as well, right? Oh, gosh, it goes back further than that. Um, It goes back to to Thomas Jefferson sending the Navy to deal with the pirates off the coast of Tripoli. Um, So, but the best thing we can do, I don't think Donald Trump wants a war. I really don't. I was going to ask I, I, you about that because he said that he doesn't. And I, I was wondering if you had an assessment there, but you, you, you're saying well, you don't think that he does. Well, yeah, I mean, to put it in terms that I think your audience will appreciate, um, a war could potentially make Donald Trump look bad. And that is something that is the thing that he cares about. Um, he's told all of his supporters that he's not going to engage in you know, foreign conflicts and all this. So if he stumbles into one, it ain't going to be good for him. So I don't think he wants to do that. What I'm worried about is that Pompeo and Bolton push him to the direction of doing it. So it matters if we, if the public rises up and says, don't you dare do this. I think that sort of public pressure, whether it's, you know, letter writing campaigns, social media, whatever you can do to generate a campaign that says no war with Iran, I think it will have an impact on presidential decision making. So while I'm going to do what I can as chairman of the Armed Services Committee, 
I honestly think the public pressure is the thing that would be most effective. Well, I was going to ask you about that very thing. So that's a message for activists here in Washington. Um, There are two measures in the House. There's H.R. 2354. There's the Senate Bill 1039. Um, Those explicitly deny Trump the authority that he would need to start a war with Iran. And I just wanted to ask you one last question, and that is about the AUMF, uh, which presidents have used in recent years to get around Congress. This is the authorization for use of military force that Congress gave to George W. Bush after 9-11, essentially a a blank check for war. Um, Would both of these or either of these bills prevent the president from using the AUMF to uh, start war in Iran or Venezuela? Yes, I believe so. Now, it's worth noting that Secretary Pompeo was asked repeatedly would he use the 2001 AUMF as an excuse for military action against Iran? And he refused to answer. Um, and a number of members also tried to make clear, look, the AUMF, the courts have interpreted that incredibly broadly. I mean, it was supposed to be about the people who attacked us on 9-11, period. Obviously, anyone who attacked us on 9-11 has long since been dealt with one way or the other, except for, I guess, Zawahiri. Um, but, you know, they've used it to do attacks all around the world. And the courts have allowed them to do it, uh, which is unfortunate. But I would not put it past this administration to use the 2001 AUMF for Iran, even though it's very clear that Iran has nothing to do with al-Qaeda and nothing to do with 9-11. But you're saying the House and Senate measures would prevent that? If those two measures pass, they make it clear that no other authority works. You cannot do this without specific new congressional authority um, to launch those attacks. All right. Congressman Adam Smith, thank you so much for your time and thank you for all the work that you're doing. I uh, appreciate the chance. Thank you. So on Tuesday, all across the country, protests took place in response to the now eight states that have signed increasingly restrictive abortion bans into law, most notably in Alabama, where abortion is, for all intents and purposes, illegal, with no exceptions for rape or incest, and would impose a prison sentence of 99 years for anyone who performs an abortion. In Seattle, NARAL Pro-Choice Washington, in conjunction with Northwest Abortion Access Fund, Planned Parenthood, Votes Northwest in Hawaii, Seattle Indivisible, and others staged a rally at City Hall with speakers in attendance, including, among others, Mayor Jenny Durkin, Seattle City Council members Lorena Gonzalez and Teresa Mosqueda, State Representative Nicole Macri, and Attorney General Bob Ferguson. I asked the Attorney General about the importance of Tuesday's rally. It's impossible to overstate how important it is to be here today. What's happening in Georgia, Alabama, Missouri, it's outrageous. We can't stand for it. I'm excited so many people are here, and we'll use all the tools in my office to put a stop to this. Yeah, that brings up the question Mm -hmm. of what we can be doing, both in your position and also as activists, to stem the tide of what's happening nationally. As activists, to support organizations like NARAL, Planned Parenthood, who can reach out in those other states and help out on the grassroots level as well, In my office, hey, we have a tool. That's the law. We can go to court. We can file briefs. We can challenge these things. And working together with other Democratic AGs, that's exactly what we're planning on doing. If there is a challenge at the Supreme Court Mm -hmm. level, um, if it it makes to the Supreme Court, what do we do here in in Washington in response to that? I'm sure you're thinking about this. Yeah, so in my office, what we can do is I can file a brief in any court in the land to have the voices of Washingtonians be heard in that court. 
So Democrat AGs like myself are already working together and having conversations about what our briefs going to look like at all levels of this fight. That'll go all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. So for folks who are listening to this, if they're concerned about what's going on, their voice will literally be heard at the U.S. Supreme Court because we'll be putting together a brief that'll be read by the Supreme Court when the time is right. State Senator Monica Dingra was also on hand to speak, and I asked her about the ramifications of what is happening nationally around reproductive rights. You know, it is very important for everyone to understand that any time you impact a woman's right to choose, it is not just about a medical decision. It is so much more. It impacts a woman's life, her economic uh, situation, the social standing. This is not a medical issue. This is really about equality and the way we see individuals. Talk a little bit about what the legislature is doing, has done to protect a woman's right to choose here in Washington. You know, this actually is exactly why elections are so important. Because with my election, we flipped our majority in the state Senate. And because of that one single vote, we were able to pass Reproductive Parity Act in the state of Washington. Had it not been for that one vote, that bill would still be languishing. And that really is a shame. And we built on that success this session when we um, had a bill on protecting access to health care. Because you can have a law that says there's going to be reproductive parity. But if that access is not there, there's no point in having that law. So the legislature now has to do more work in making sure that that access is available to everyone, no matter where they are in the state of Washington, because that is still not the case. There are areas and pockets of the state of Washington where women do not have the ability to access their full reproductive rights. And so there is more work to be done in our state in that regard. And just give me an idea, if you know at this point, what that would look like looking forward to the next legislative session. I think we there are multiple ways of looking at it. One is we have to make sure that the rules and the laws that are on the books are being enforced, that healthcare um, hospitals, agencies, they are doing and providing the care that they're required to under the law. And for the legislature, it's really making sure we have funding in place so that clinics and medical centers are in a position to be able to provide these cares for everyone. So really having a good understanding of where the barriers are to accessing this care and then ensuring we are putting resources in to make sure people have access to health care. And is that something you're going to be having an eye on for the next legislative session? I assume it is. Absolutely, it will be. And finally, I also had a chance to speak with NARAL Pro-Choice Washington's President Tiffany Hankins. The official count for Seattle's rally was over a thousand people, and I asked her if she was pleased with that turnout. Absolutely. Uh, We, on Thursday, started hearing the rally cry from our members that we needed to show up in the streets, and we were working to meet that demand in cities across Washington state. So not only here, I'm excited to go check with my team and hear about the turnout in Bellingham, in Olympia, in uh, Spokane later today. Um, And yeah, I'm I'm incredibly happy with the folks that turned out today. So talk about the action for NARAL moving forward, because obviously this is going to be a protracted fight. Absolutely. Um, This is not the beginning, nor will it be the end. Um, We are asking folks to continue to speak out, uh, taking our uh, 7 in 10 Americans uh, message and making sure that people know that we are the majority to the streets and to the social media feeds of every individual is really, really important right now, especially as this is going to start moving through the courts. Public opinion does matter. It does influence the courts. And so keep speaking out, share your stories, uh, share your commitment to upholding Roe versus Wade um, in whatever ways you can with your friends, neighbors, social media channels, and with strangers. <laughs> in, in terms of what NARAL does uh, in Washington State, 
how do you see your role in this nationwide fight? Absolutely. Uh, well, I like to say that we're not fortunate here in Washington State. We fought really freaking hard to get where we are in terms of being a pro-choice state, uh, making sure that we elect these leaders and then hold them accountable to doing the absolute most that they can do right now. Um, I think that that's the battle we have here in Washington State, is that we have leaders who are pro-choice, uh, but we need to hold them accountable to actually taking action. Uh, Councilmember Lorena Gonzalez is, is uh, introducing a proclamation in the Seattle City Council. We want people in cities across the state to be doing that same thing. We want the governor speaking out. We want our state legislators speaking out. We want them doing everything they can to safeguard abortion rights here and across the nation. There were a number of men present here today. There were a number of men who spoke. How can men be the best advocates and allies possible in this fight? Well, I think our speakers today demonstrated exactly how. You speak out, you, you uh, let folks know that you stand with women and the people who are having abortions, and the solidarity shown in those actions speaks volumes. We need to know that this is not just a woman's issue. This is a man's issue, too. This is a family issue. This is a people issue. It's anticipated that this is going to make its way to the Supreme Court. I'm sure that you're in touch with NARAL nationally. What's the plan? So we knew that this was going to happen. Um, we fought to block the Kavanaugh appointment last year, knowing that the fundamental right to accessing abortion was at stake. Uh, we will continue to fight this all the way through the courts, but also in the streets. I mean, that's why we showed out here today. That's why there were rallies in all 50 states and in D.C. and in Puerto Rico, uh, because it's a people's movement. It's not just about what our um, what what the majority of the Supreme Court it says if we're taking to the streets and showing them that we are the majority and we won't go back, they will have to listen. So in closing, if you were not able to make it that day or did not catch the live feed, I want to share with you one of the most powerful moments of the afternoon, which is when Seattle City Councilwoman Lorena Gonzalez asked women to sound off in a very specific way. On the count of three, I want to hear you roar, right? Because women, we roar. So on the count of three, I want you to make it so loud that you can feel it just rumbling from your gut into your throat right now. I want it so loud that Alabama and our U.S. Supreme Court can hear the fierce, unresenting, resilient roar of women in Washington State. Are you with me? As both A.G. Ferguson and Tiffany Hankins mentioned, it is so important to get involved with and donate to pro-choice organizations right now. So I will have a number of links for you available at indivisiblepodcast.org. And we will end our week as we always do by checking in with our friend Stephen Wilhelm for our weekly calls to action. Hey, man. Hey, Stefan, how's it going? Good. Uh, so this week, uh, as we know, Joe Biden has uh, officially jumped into the race for president. He had been hinting at it for some time, uh, but it is now official. And in response, as many have heard, Trump and his cronies, uh, specifically Rudy Giuliani, have moved to use the federal government to try to open an, an investigation into Biden. Uh, what can you tell us about this? 
Well, there's um, some things that we know, which are that uh, Rudy Giuliani has talked openly about uh, traveling to uh, Ukraine to try and influence that uh, company to investigate one of President Trump's uh, political opponents, in this case, uh, Joe Biden. Um, without going into Giuliani's false claims, uh, Joe Biden's son was um, associated with um, Ukrainian uh, resource company, I think it was uh, oil, natural gas, I forget which, that was under investigation and uh, that investigation was stopped at, at one point. What Joe Biden has openly boasted about is that he was uh, influential in um, helping Ukraine throw out one of their uh, corrupt prosecutors, top prosecutors, the country's top prosecutor. So, um, and, and the country of Ukraine um, reinforces or, or uh, confirms um, that this uh, prosecutor was fired um, because he was heavily involved in corruption and not, not for any other reason. But nonetheless, that hasn't stopped uh, Giuliani uh, from claiming uh, falsely that there was uh, a corruption between Biden and his son and this uh, this prosecutor and that's the reason why the the investigation was stopped so um you know this is disturbing on on at least two levels the one level being um you know it's always been a principle at least i thought it was a principle that uh, we certainly didn't try and influence other countries elections and we certainly wouldn't encourage other countries to influence our election but not so in this case and also this this goes back to the chance of lock her up the things that we would expect in a weak republic, not the strongest democracy in the world, where the head of the government would uh, use his executive branch, his uh, Justice Department, to um, investigate his opponents. So this is really, um, should be beyond the pale, but like everything Trump does, it's all corruption right out in the open. Mm -hmm. So the action would be for your listeners to please call their representative and their senators and, and to ask them to please call for an investigation into these actions. There need to be consequences uh, for using the government to go after your political opponents. Yeah. And before we move on from that, I should mention that Trump uh, also wants Attorney General William Barr to open an investigation into Biden as well, right? Exactly right. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for the reminder. So this this would have been bad enough if we were just trying to drag Ukraine into this. But um, now kind of like uh, Barr saying, gee, I need to look into this alleged spying or and he didn't use the word alleged. I need to look into this spying on the Trump campaign. Um, but there's certainly um, I think uh, what President Trump said was something like, oh, no, I haven't talked to him like I believe that. No, I haven't talked to him. But if I did talk to him, uh, William Barr, about investigating one of my political opponents, it would have been totally appropriate. So just as I say, you, you, this is the kind of thing you expect in a, in a really, really weak emerging democracy, not the strongest democracy in the world. Right. And William Barr increasingly is uh, proving to be uh, not the people's attorney, but uh, Trump's <laughs> personal attorney. So that's a, a frightening prospect in and of itself. Uh, so we are asking our members of Congress to speak up publicly and forcefully against this. So then also this week, uh, The Washington Post recently reported that former Department of Homeland Security Kirsten Nielsen was forced to resign in part because she had, quote, challenged a secret White House plan to arrest thousands of parents and children in a blitz operation against migrants in 10 major U.S. cities. What can you tell us about this situation? 
Yeah, and so not only does that sound horrible, just the way that you described it, but what makes it even worse, in my opinion, is that um, the reason that she, Kirsten Nielsen, the head of DHS, objected to this operation, and and it was also um, opposed by the former head of ICE, who was fired along with Kirsten Nielsen, a gentleman named Vitello, I believe. Um, the, the reason that they opposed it was not because it was bad on the face of it or it would be uh, you know, harmful to, to people, um, but it just wasn't being uh, properly planned. It was, um, they were afraid it was going to um, backfire and that it would um, you know, take resources away from where they would be needed for critical border operations. So it's, it's just maddening. It, it, yeah, we're, we're okay with this uh, thing, but we think um, it might not be uh, well-planned. And uh, you know, what are you going to do about um, We like cruelty. Do... We just want it to be efficient cruelty. It, it, exactly so. <laughs> exactly so. We just want the trains to run on time. We don't really mind if it's bad. <laughs> so anyway, that was the, the, you know, that was the situation that... Uh, Supposedly, she and, and Vitello were opposing this because they thought that it just wasn't being, it wasn't ready for prime time. There were a thousand things wrong with it. And, and again, uh, Miller supposedly convinced Trump that, uh, well, these people don't have your best interests at heart and they're not trying uh, bad enough to be tough. So you need tougher people in there. And that was exactly the line that Trump gave when, when he fired him. We're just going in a tougher direction. So Yeah, it does sound like that it has Stephen Miller's fingerprints all over it. So uh, what are we asking our members of Congress and Senators? to do in response to this. Exactly. Again, you know, so in this case, we're asking uh, folks to call their uh, representative and their two senators. And, and again, what we need to do is we need to ask for just add this to the list of things that we should be investigating um, without even getting into the should we, shouldn't we impeach him. Um, there's plenty of investigating that we need to do before we decide, before we have all the facts uh, to make a decision about impeachment. So please call your members of Congress and uh, call for an investigation into this latest cruel scheme. Uh, as well as anything else that Trump and and Miller may be planning to oppress people that are trying to get into the country with uh, legitimate asylum claims. Yeah, the backlog of matters that demand investigation continues to stack ever higher. And uh, we appreciate you helping us uh, keep abreast of it. Stephen, thank you as always. My pleasure. Looking forward to talking to you next time, Stephen. So before we go, I want to let you guys know about something very cool. The Detention Lottery is a show that is billing itself as an immersive theater experience set in a U.S. immigration detention center, and it is based on the experiences of Seattle immigration attorneys. This Friday, May 24th, there is going to be a staged reading of the play, and the performers will be working with the audience to explore points of participation and interaction. This is going to be happening at Fontlory Church Fellowship at 6.30 p.m., and that is at 9140 California Avenue Southwest in Seattle, and donations will be in support of the Northwest Immigration Rights Project. And that's going to do it for this week's show. You can find links to everything that we talk about at indivisiblepodcast.org. The email for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to my guest, Congressman Adam Smith. Thank you also to Attorney General Bob Ferguson, to State Senator Monka Dingra, and to NARAL Pro-Choice Washington's Tiffany Hankins. Special thanks to Rebecca Bryant and Sarah Servan. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.